Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. This is found on page 856 to 857 in the Pew Bible. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, four uh, 15-year-olds living on a sailboat for a week. And uh, really, you know, what could go wrong there? Um, Actually, when they're all Boy Scouts, uh, less than you might think. Um, But there was one night in particular that was a pretty trying night on that sailboat. A night that felt like it was never going to end. And I was one of those uh, four boys on that sailboat. and we were on a scouting trip, uh, a high adventure trip, sailing on Lake Kentucky. It's a 160,000 acre lake. It's the largest man-made lake east of the Mississippi. And, and after literally only about two hours of orientation on training and, and training on, on how to use a sailboat, uh, they just sort of uh, divided us up into teams of four and put us on our boats and, and we headed out for a week of learning to sail, really mostly by trial and error. And uh, as we found our home on the sailboat, this place where we were going to spend the next week together, and our, our little flotilla of about eight sailboats headed out for the week, it was mostly great. And, and the vast majority of the week went fantastic. And we, we slowly learned by, by trial and error how to tack into the wind and get the boat to go where we wanted it to go and move along our desired coast. And actually, of course, and actually most importantly, uh, we learned uh, how to use this tiny little finicky outboard engine on the back to, to push us out of the way of barges when there wasn't enough wind because there's these massive barges that come down Lake Kentucky that would absolutely crush us like a little roach uh, if we didn't have that little outboard engine. So that was the lesson to learn first, how to get that thing to work. And, and every night we would come into a little cove on the lake and we'd put down the anchor and we'd cook supper and we'd watch the stars and then we'd go to bed. Except for one of the final nights we were on the trip, uh, there were no stars to be seen, uh, only dark thunderclouds. And just after dark, the rain began to fall and then to pour, and we discovered that our sailboat's roof leaked like a sieve. Uh, And and the cabin wasn't that big. It was barely enough for all four of us to to lay down and sleep in there at night. And so it didn't take long before the the number of leaks overwhelmed the number of dishes and pots we had to set under things, and soon everything was soaked. We were soaked. We were cold. It was miserable. And the night just seemed like it was never going to end. If you ever had those nights, minutes seemed to tick by like hours. 
I think we've all had nights like those, haven't we? Nights that seem like they were never going to end. Maybe it's sitting in the ER waiting for a report. Maybe on a long drive alone sometime. Kids, maybe it's that terrible nightmare that wakes you up. Parents, maybe it's waiting for a child to come home or at least for a text to say they're on their way. Maybe it's that night with the teething baby that just won't go back to sleep. Tossing and turning, waiting for better news. Darkness makes us feel tired and alone and vulnerable. And we feel the same darkness as we look around us in the world too, don't we? And when we peer into our own stories of heartache, our own regrets, we feel the darkness that's in the world. And, And life often feels like a struggle in the best of conditions. But then when it gets dark, wow. And some of you right now this morning, you're in the middle of that night that seems like it's just not gonna end. That's where you, you, you drove here this morning and you are feeling it. You're in the middle of that night. And that's what it had to feel like to be an Israelite in the first century. To, to be in a Roman-occupied Israel in the first century. And at this point, God's people, they had endured 400 years of silence. They hadn't heard from him. And they'd grown up hearing such great things about God, the stuff that he had done, but they hadn't seen any of it themselves. I mean, do you ever feel that now? That God, I, I read the Bible, I hear these great things he'd done, but, but I didn't feel like I've ever seen it with my own eyes. So many stories, so many promises so long ago. They were enslaved, they were oppressed, carving out a miserable existence. For them, it was always winter and never Christmas. It was always a sleepless night and never morning. And and exhibit A of this, right, is Zechariah, a priest. We've been looking at his story. He knew the stories. He knew the promises better than most. He had studied God's word. He had studied the scriptures. He knew them well. And then an angel appears and says his old and barren wife is going to get pregnant as a sign that the dawn is finally coming. And what does Zechariah do in that moment? Well, he's a priest, he's working in the temple, he's talking to an angel, and what does he do? He tells the angel, prove it, give me a sign, how am I going to know this is true? But at one level, who wouldn't be a little cynical after so much disappointment, right? When the night had lasted so long, it's hard to even imagine what the sun would feel like. And in the dark, we fumble around for just about anything to give us a little light, our cell phone, a flashlight, anything just to bring a little comfort and clarity, Right? But in those long, dark nights, what we need most is for the sun to rise. For for the dawn to break and the light to overwhelm us. And that's exactly what Zechariah says is happening to our world. I mean, sure, he started off cynical, skeptical, but now he's had nine months to think. That's where Luke picks up his story here. And his son is now born And the last sign that the dawn was near as a sign that the darkness is about to lift. And he sings a song of hope. That's what we heard, Zechariah's song of hope. And this is how it ends. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, Jesus comes like the sunrise after an endless night, 
And the same is true today, no matter how dark it feels. See, the sun will rise, for the night is nearly over. The sun will rise, for the night is nearly over. And when the sun begins to rise, when Jesus comes into our world like a sun peering over the horizon, three things happen. We begin to see more clearly. We begin to fear less deeply. We begin to live more purposely, to walk more purposely. So when the sun begins to rise, we begin to see more clearly. We begin to fear less deeply. And we begin to walk more purposely. That's the story that that Zechariah records in his song, and and I hope it's our story as well. Because when the sun begins to rise, everything changes, and we begin to see more clearly. Zechariah goes from cynicism to faith, willing to challenge everything that's normal, because now he can see. And when Luke picks up the telling of Zechariah and Elizabeth's stories here in in verse 57, a few verses earlier than, than what Jake read for us, Nine months have passed, and it was time for Elizabeth, who was another impossible person, just like Mary, to give birth to their son. And she gives birth, and everyone is absolutely astonished. And the text tells us that her family and her relatives and their neighbors, they they all hear about this great mercy that God has shown to Elizabeth, this incredible miracle. And they gathered around to celebrate the birth of this boy. And perhaps maybe even Mary and Joseph were in the crowd of relatives that day. And on the eighth day after this baby was born, the time came to announce the name. And of course, the, the, the crowd of family and friends, they all know what his name is going to be. Zachariah. I mean, Zachariah Jr. This is, this is the name, this unexpected gift of a son so late in life. Of course, you're going to name him Zach Jr. And remember, at this point, Zachariah can't speak. <laughs> that was what he ended up with after challenging the angel. He hasn't been able to speak for over nine months now. And so when the crowd says, he will be named Zachariah, Elizabeth quickly jumps in and says, no, no, his name is going to be John. But poor Elizabeth, they, they don't believe her. I mean, can you believe this crowd? They, they won't even believe the kid's own mother about his name. I mean, it's so obvious to the crowd, of course you name him Zachariah. That's the normal thing, the right thing to do in this situation. Name the boy Zachariah. I mean, maybe they think Elizabeth's just experiencing a little case of of mommy brain after all those late nights. Uh, They they don't know, but what's going on? Not not John. His name is Zachariah, of course. And so they asked for a second opinion. (laughs) They said, let's go get the boy's father. (laughs) And so they ask, and they say, look, no one in your family is named John. What's his name really going to be? And again, he can't speak, and so he asks for a tablet, and, and he writes out the name. And he writes on the tablet, his name is John. And everyone stares in stunned silence as Zachariah is for the first time able to speak again. And now we have to pause here for a moment, though, to catch up on what's really happening in this moment. I mean, because for us to name a, a baby is really not that big of a deal in terms of, of an expectation about the name. There's, there's not a huge pressure on us to name our kids after a particular family member. I think we have some of that. But, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're Americans, right? We name our kids what we want to name our kids. But this is a culture in which family identity meant everything. Your life was meaningless if you couldn't carry on the family name. 
They had been waiting in the dark for decades. Some of you know the pain of infertility. And now finally he's here. Finally this boy has arrived. And they go with John. But Zechariah knew what the angel was saying. Name him John, the angel said. And the name John means the Lord is gracious. Zechariah knew now that this was a sign that the dawn was approaching. Jesus was coming. And with that glimmer of light, he could see what was normal for them, family identity, wasn't the most important thing anymore. Family identity wasn't the most important thing anymore. You see, this is exactly what Jesus does. And John would prepare the way. Jesus enables us to see what we could never see in the dark. He completely realigns our priorities around him. And C.S. Lewis summarizes this so beautifully when he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You see, when the sun rises, everything you've been missing, you can see clearly. And if you're a Christian, Jesus isn't just one truth and a long list of truth. He is the truth that shines the light on everything else. And we begin to see more clearly. You see, when Jesus is our light, we no longer let what's normal decide for us. And I love that in this story, that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they do something that's completely opposite of what's normal. Seeing what they now see, they're willing to buck the norms of the most important things in their world. This was not a minor thing to name their kids something different. But Jesus turns everything upside down. It makes me wonder how many of the decisions in my life, the things that I value most, are simply based on, on what's normal in, in our culture rather than on Jesus who changes everything. I mean, I mean, think about that. As we reflect on our lives, how busy you are, or how many activities your kids are in, or the, the house you live in, the car you drive, how many presents you'll end up buying, what you do with your spare time. I mean, is, is it all just normal? Or have you seen the sun rise? And even today, we still worship family, don't we? I mean, it looks a little different, right? But we still worship family. And we can make family the, the goal of everything, can't we? As, as if getting married and, and having kids was, was the goal in life. But Christianity affirms and even invites singleness as a good and right and fundamental, fulfilling calling actually says that the body of Christ is the ultimate family. And this isn't that family shouldn't become less important. Don't marry saying this. And yet, what decides for you how important it is? Would you rather your kids be successful or faithful? Happy or holy? What's normal isn't always best. And I mean, I really feel that this time of year. Um, it, it's so easy for, for us, I mean, for me to, to get swept up in the midst of all of, of what's normal about Christmas, which is really indulgence, right, of stuff and food and parties and family, which is all good. I love good Christmas parties. I love giving and receiving gifts. But then it's like, oh yeah, and, and a little Jesus sort of thrown in too. Yeah, we'll sing some Christmas carols and 
And believe me, I'm not pointing any fingers because I do this. It's normal. But is that really what we want to make our decisions for us? So if you look back at the story, as soon as Zechariah has, has the faith to move away from what's normal and name his son John, he begins speaking again. And the first words of his mouth are praises to God. And the crowd is, is really confused now. And they're actually a little bit freaked out. And this is what, what it says here. It says, They all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear, it says, came on all of their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The sun will rise, for the night is nearly over. The sun will rise, for the night is nearly over. And then we get this song, Zachariah's song. And I imagine this is what he spoke to his neighbors. And, and he did have nine months to think about what he was going to say when he could first speak, didn't he? And the first whole section is about what happens when the sun rises. And what we see is that when that happens, we fear less deeply. Listen again to these verses that, that Jake read for us. He says, this is what Zechariah says. He says, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from all of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, these promises, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Do you catch that? Might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Remember, Zechariah writes this. He sings this from a place of darkness, oppression, injustice, and pain. But what God had predicted all throughout the Old Testament is finally coming to fruition. Redemption, salvation, mercy, deliverance. It's all finally beginning to dawn. And when that happens, the enemies won't have the last word. When the sun begins to rise, we will be able to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. Because God has and he will deliver us. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in his uh, paraphrase, the message. He, he renders this verse this way. He says, what he swore to our father Abraham, a clean rescue from our enemy camp, so that we can worship him without a care in the world so that we can worship him without a care in the world. That's what happens when the dawn begins to creep over the horizon. When we see the promises start to come true, when we see our rescue, we are able to serve and worship without a care in the world, fearlessly. You see, fear is one of the brutalest weapons of Satan and sin. You see, as soon as sin entered into the world, shame and fear and guilt and suspicion and regret flooded in. But when we have been rescued, the sun will rise, 
The night is nearly over. So don't let fear control you. I mean, what are we afraid of? Of failure? Of losing our reputation? Of not having enough money for retirement? Of losing a child? Of not finding a spouse? not getting into college, parents have not been able to pay for college. I mean, how many decisions in our lives are based on fear? I mean, fear really might be the biggest hurdle to our faith. So how do we overcome fear as we sit in the midst of darkness? I mean, how do we experience what Zechariah talks about here, of this serving God without fear? How did Zechariah settle his own fears? What we see in this passage that, that I read is that he reminds himself of God's promises. And that's what he's been doing in, in these verses. God's promises, they're, they're like instruments in a plane that let you fly when you can't see. Because all of us go through periods of time where we feel like, God, I just don't, I don't see you, I don't feel you. It's clinging to his promises that let us do that. When I was in, in Kenya back uh, toward the end of October, in the country on the way back, we took a small plane for part of it. And it was pretty cool. I got to ride in the co-pilot seat for the entire flight. Um, and it, actually, it was awesome. I loved sitting in the, in the co-pilot seat. As, as I, I peppered, the, I was like a seven-year-old boy in the cockpit. I was peppering the, the pilot with questions the entire flight, and he walked me through all the instruments, the, the ground radar, the radio beacons, the GPS systems, the altimeters, the compasses, all things that allow the plane to navigate when the pilot can't see anything. And then I got to experience a little bit of it firsthand because we were flying along the outskirts of a thunderstorm and for several minutes we were completely engulfed in clouds, unable to see even a few feet in front of the plane. And yet the pilot was completely calm, trusting the instruments. You see, in order to live fearlessly, we must trust the promises that have been made in the dark. But take heart. The sun will rise, for the night is nearly over. And when the sun begins to rise, we also begin to walk more purposefully. Look at how Zechariah ends his song in verses 76 through 79. He says, And you, child, meaning baby John there, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, you will go before Jesus to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sun shall rise, well, the sun shall rise, sunshine, excuse me, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you notice that language at the end there? The language of feet, of way, and peace? The path that our feet walk, the way. This is a common biblical language to describe the way we live our whole lives. And if you read through other parts of the New Testament, the letters of the Apostle Paul, for example, when he talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, he doesn't just mean talking about how you walk the dog around the block. He's talking about the whole of our lives. How do we conduct ourselves and you see, one of the prime benefits that comes from the sun rising, 
the light dawning is peace. Peace between God and us, first and foremost, and peace between us and our relationships with one another. Peace between us and creation. The life, the walk that Christians walk is one marked by peace. But you see, this peace is only made possible because of the mercy of God, which has made possible the forgiveness of sins. You see, until our sins are forgiven, we will remain sitting in darkness, plagued by the shadow of death. But the good news of the gospel is that sins can be forgiven. You see, the fundamental difference between religion and the gospel is that religion primarily offers plans for self-improvement Well, the gospel proclaims good news of the forgiveness of sins. Religion offers self-improvement. The gospel often offers good news. I was reminded of this this week when when Rachel sent me a a text after having read an article online. It was some article about how to be a good wife, and she basically wrote back, I'm sorry, like I've failed on all these things. And she was apologizing for not having lived up to the the expectations in this article. And so I clicked the link in, in in the text, and I read the article she sent, and I noticed that it was really, it was a good article. It was full of great advice. It really was. It was a great article. Great advice. But that was it. There was no hope at the end of the article for for what to do if you hadn't lived up to the advice in the article. And and then I noticed the source. It was from a, a Mormon content provider. And then it all became clear. Because religion only offers good advice without any hope for what to do when you fall short. You see, good advice, even the best advice, if that's all it is, will always leave you feeling guilty. C.S. Lewis pointed out, if Christianity is only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. For there has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years, and a bit more makes no difference. But Christianity, the gospel, is not good advice The gospel is good news that frees and transforms you. In the gospel, your sins are forgiven. Your adoption as a son or daughter of the king and maker of the universe is secure. You are given life to the full both now and forever. You see, religion sounds like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But the gospel sounds like, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. The gospel sounds like when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The gospel sounds like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Don't ever confuse good advice with good news. And for some of you, you've been trying your whole life to follow good advice, and it's crushing you. 
Would today be the day you stop trying harder and instead rest in what Jesus has done for you? And when you experience that sort of life and freedom, you are able to walk more purposefully. You no longer have to let what's easy determine your path. I mean, the easy path is the path of least resistance, the the path of fear, the path of pride, the path of self-protection, the path of comfort. But the gospel beckons us into a path that is choosing what is better over what is easier, what's right over what is comfortable. As I was thinking about this this week, I was, I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes from a man named Thomas Brooks. He was a Puritan writer, and he has this great little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, Satan's Devices. And he writes, There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest affliction. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest affliction. What he means, in other words, he says, Satan tells us that, that little sins, especially if they bring us comfort, are no big deal. But the truth is there's more evil, there's more wrong wrapped up in the smallest sin than in the greatest suffering and affliction than we endure without sinning. Remembering that has helped me so often in moments of temptation. There's more evil in the least sin than in the greatest affliction. You see, if all we have is good advice, we choose comfort and ease every single time. But if we have good news, if we have hope, what is easy no longer controls us. We can choose what is right over what is easy because we know that the sun will rise for the night is nearly over. Now it's important to remember the sunrise takes a long time. Right? If you've ever gotten up early to watch the sunrise, it doesn't happen all at once. It takes a long time. And Zechariah, he never lived to see Jesus die and rise again. And, and neither did John. If you know a little bit of John's story, he's executed before Jesus is crucified. But both Zechariah and John knew that the sun was rising, that the night was about to end. And in the middle of a long night that seems like it will never end, we must remember that the sun will rise. And when it does, it brings warmth and beauty and clarity. The promise of a fresh start, the hope of a better day. But to give us that light, that warmth, that beauty, Jesus would have to enter the darkness with us and for us. To give us freedom from the shadow of death, Jesus would walk straight into the shadow of death and not just into the shadow, into the heart of death itself. Our good shepherd died for us. To guide our feet into the way of peace, his feet would be pierced. You see, the night is long, But Jesus endured the longest night in the grave and rose again. And therefore, we can take hope. For the sun is rising and the night is nearly over. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that that is true.